I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that is why tableware was so important for the founding of the country. Oh, that is fascinating. I can't believe you learned that from a podcast. The world really needs more outlets for this sort of infotainment. Everybody stop what you're doing and listen. What? What? This is not a drill. You asked for more outlets for high-quality infotainment, and you're going to get more than you can handle. The Agora Podcast Network is bringing together names like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud to the same place at the same time at a convention devoted to educational podcast content. No No way. way! way on june 29th from 11 a.m to 7 p.m agora is bringing you the intelligent speech conference will it just be those three no in addition to mike duncan of the history of rome and revolutions david crowther of the history of england and kevin stroud of the history of english many of your favorite agora podcast network hosts will be there including royfield brown of mid-atlantic xander and eric fogg of reconsider steve guerra of the history of the papacy podcast uh, Cloud Myron Guzer of the Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Alduri of the History of Westeros, Brian Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece Podcast, and Benjamin Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia. Wow, those are all amazingly talented individuals. Really talented individuals. Some of them are amazingly talented even more than others, but surely <laughs> there are too many for one day. Have you never been to a convention before? There'll be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tag. Well, okay, there won't be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. Hmm, that does sound good. But what if I get hungry? Relax. Tickets are only $80, which will leave you plenty of money to enjoy the many wonderful dining establishments in New York City's Chelsea neighborhood. Wow, I'm sold, but how do I get there? The venue is conveniently located near a variety of exciting subway stops. If you want to drive your car in Manhattan for some reason, you can do that too, but parking is expensive. I recommend the train. What an amazing idea, and some fine urban planning knowledge. But does this Manhattan have anything to do other than the convention? Are you kidding? Oh, you're not. You're not kidding. Okay. Um, well, Manhattan is one of the most exciting places on the planet, and the venue is located in the heart of wonderful Chelsea, one of the key cultural destinations in the city. Only a few long, long blocks from the High Line, and a short subway ride from dozens of museums, restaurants, and shopping. Make it a weekend trip and have an amazing time. Wow! I'm booking my hotel now. Where can I get tickets to Agora's Intelligence Speech Conference? 
To go to the conference and see Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud live and in person, simply go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Awesome! Oh, awesome! Just for the record, they're both giving a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, but I just thought you should know because it's very impactful. But remember, Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, together in the same place at the same time. And to learn more, you can go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Are You Going My Way series, a discussion of transportation technology in the United States. Today, I am going to host, and my name's Steve, and I'm the host of the History of the Papacy podcast. I have no particular expertise in any of the areas that we'll be discussing. (laughs) I'm just an interested amateur, and my role will be as a moderator and ask dumb questions. But we are joined by Ben, who is an urban planner by trade. Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you were interested in doing this series? Sure. Like you said, I'm an urban planner. I work in Rhode Island. I mostly work in the transportation area, so I've got a, I've got a latent interest in this. I do a podcast called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which has nothing to do with planning or transportation or anything. It's just my fun hobby. But so I've never really gotten too much of a chance to blend my two interest areas. So this, this was a, a fun chance to talk a little bit about transportation planning in an area that people seem to be really interested in right now. Hopefully they continue to be. <laughs> now, really quickly, just to recap, it's been a little while since we did our first episode, which was basically an introduction. I would highly suggest you go back and listen to that episode because a lot of the groundwork was laid that will help put this episode into context. But just as a recap, last time we discussed the basics of what transportation is, the network effect, and other basics of how transportation happens. We also discussed the current state of the American transportation system and a little bit of the history of the transportation system. Uh, So though there are public transportation systems in major cities, Americans remain heavily dependent on cars, which create all sorts of problems. The system is congested despite being subsidized and expensive, and it creates problems for those who can't afford or physically use cars. And also the aspects of the of car accidents, upwards to around 300,000 people are killed in car crashes every year. There's pollution aspects. Today, what we're going to focus in on is one particular emerging technology in transportation, which is the electric car. So moving away from the internal combustion engine, which is pretty much dominated vehicle transport, uh, personal automobile transportation for, what, a 100 years close to. So now we're going to be talking about this electric vehicle and what is electrical vehicles, positives and negatives. Now, Ben, the idea of running cars on electricity, it's not new, is it? It actually goes back quite a ways in the development of the automobile. That's right, Steve. You know, when cars first were developing, there were all sorts of theories about how cars were going to run. I love periods like this. They're super fun to study. And there are all sorts of 
ideas about how people were going to run cars. Uh, the internal combustion engine was one of those ideas. You know, people were also, uh, one of the first cars was an electric car. There were also steam-powered cars that people were, were trying out. And ultimately, after, you know, a, a whole bunch of rigmarole, the, the internal combustion engine in general kind of won out. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Mostly just, you know, oil is cheap and it's very energy dense. Uh, and then some of the other things like, you know, the electric grid wasn't particularly well developed and things like that. That said, though, th there's still this one fascinating little area where that old period survives t today, which is, you know, uh, one set of inventors uh, worked around gasoline and another set of inventors worked on what's called now the diesel engine. And so it's sort of the uh, the Betamax versus VHS of its day that's continued to survive. And, you know, they're... they're they have advantages and disadvantages of their own, which is probably a different show, but <laughs> it shows up in weird places. Anyway, that that whole period sort of resolved itself, like you said, around 100 years ago. Uh, and electric cars in the United States pretty much dropped off the map. You know, they've become much bigger in, say, the past decade. Where did that technology originate from? In the 1970s, there was this thing the oil crisis, where a bunch of the main oil-producing countries in the world got together and decided to embargo everyone else, sort of just to throw their weight around, but there were other excuses. You know, threw the developed world into uh, something of a recession. At that time, of course, there were also the environmental movement was very large, and so people started questioning a bunch of assumptions that had been made and the, this old technology of uh, electrically powered cars came up as possibly uh, a solution to some of the issues that they were having. A, a big part of that, like I said, the, there was the interest in eliminating pollution. And around this time, uh, the, the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts had been passed by Congress. And, you know, prior to that time, what people had mostly been focusing on in the environmental world was preserving habitats and cleaning up these sort of you know, the, the image of the sort of Dickinsonian mill, the satanic mill, belching smoke and everything like that. And, you know, to a certain extent, up until the Clean Water Act was signed, that was still kind of true. It wasn't as bad as it was, you know, in the, in the 1890s, but th there was still, you know, unregulated pollution going on. And so um, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act came in and forced the what we call point source pollution. So those mills belching fumes and everything, they were forced to clean up their act in the United States. To a large extent, they were heavily regulated by the government and everything. But so-called non-point source pollution was not regulated. And that's sort of, with a big factory or an electric power plant, you know where it is. There's a point you can put on a map and say it's there. That's where it's coming from. And you can even, like, do air samples and say, oh, we've studied the plume and the pollution's coming from there. With a car, it moves around, it's very small source of pollution individually, and so it's called a non-point source pollution, and the Clean Air and Clean Water Act kind of gave those kinds of pollution a pass at first. Partly just out of practicality, like how are you going to regulate that? And it's taken years, and we've developed ways to start imposing environmental regulations on cars, but you do come up against the fact that, you know, it's a private market, we live in a you know, a free market society. And at a certain point, there's, you know, what's the alternative? 
And so that's kind of where the electric car thing came in. What, what they started finding is that after the Clean Air and Clean Water Act was passed, is that there were areas where even after they cleaned up all these sources of point pollution, like all the factories and all the power plants were forced to put on air scrubbers and everything, there were certain geographic locations, uh, like San Francisco and LA and California, sort of more globally, you could think about London with the London smog. There's places where the geography and the weather pattern concentrates air pollution. And so for these places, all of a sudden, they'd done everything that everyone had for years thought was the things that you needed to do. And they discovered that underneath the first problem, there was a whole other problem that was as big as the first one. And so California really led the way in pushing for electric cars starting in the early 1990s. Beyond their geographic issue, they also are sort of unique in having the market power to do this. They're you know one of the single largest markets in the United States. And so they have a real ability to push the boat out compared to a lot of the other states. What happened ultimately in the 1990s was that despite, you know, the, the state of California, you know, trying to push this stuff, a couple companies started coming out with test models, but they were really dragging their feet. There was a, it was a period with very low oil prices. There were technical problems, which I'll get back to in a sec. Uh, but, but ultimately they, they sued and, uh, sort of hobbled the, the initial round of legislation, which then sparked a second round of legislation and, and so on. But I think, you know, talking about some of those uh, technology issues is actually going to set up the rest of this conversation pretty nicely. We're going to get back to a definition of electric cars later. The technical issues that they were having is that commercial batteries, like car batteries, was sort of the best source of energy storage at the time. And they hadn't really improved much since the 1900s. It's like, you know, the same, for, for most of us, the same lowest price car battery that you can get in the, the car store, you know, for me, that's what I put in my car. And that's basically pretty much the same technology that it's been for a hundred years. The, their conversion rates are pretty poor. So the, the amount of energy, when, you know, energy comes in, a certain percentage is lost as it's converted into storage. And then it's lost again as it's discharged. And they just, they weren't really good power per pound, which made, you know, some of those early electric cars were, you know, really heavy because they had all these batteries and, they're full of you know, toxic yeah. chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but over the course of the 1990s, a lot of these issues were pro progressively eroded, often due to advances in other fields. So starting in the 1980s and uh, even back to the 70s, there were some weird advances that were being made in quantum physics. Um, of course, quantum physics had existed since, the uh, again, the turn of the century, but people were starting to actually apply it to things. One of them, things that they discovered was the the transistor. But they also started finding that there were some neat things you could do in chemistry. So for the first time in like years, chemistry opened up as a, as an interesting field because there were all these rare earth minerals that if you used them in the right way, they had some really interesting chemical properties. And these were interesting because the consumer electronics market was booming in the 1980s and the 1990s. So if you think, you know, personal calculators, Walkmen, <laughs> compact, like personal compact disc players. These things needed miniaturized computer electronics. So that really pushed the computer industry forward. They, they needed liquid crystal displays and they need, needed better batteries. Uh, so all these advances were happening and eventually someone came around to start applying them to cars. The first place they started doing this 
was in electric and hybrid vehicles that were built uh, overseas, because those markets had always been, since the 70s, a lot more friendly to uh, to electric cars than the U.S., because uh, Europe and Japan have um, almost no domestic fuel reserves, <laughs> whereas the U.S., we have Texas. So, so that brings us to sort of the, the hybrid revolution, which was sort of the turn of the century. It started in Japan in 1997 when Toyota released the Prius and Honda launched the Insight. What these do is they took advantage of a whole bunch of the technologies that had been invented. They had much more, they had battery packs, which were still sizable and still full of toxic chemicals, but much smaller than they had been before, much more efficient because they are using lithium ions as their, uh, their, their methodology. And then they used computers and some other miniaturized uh, electronics devices to make the cars run more efficiently including, you know, most famously regenerative braking, where when you hit the brakes, it actually, rather than just being this pad that hits on the wheel and generates just heat that is wasted, that energy goes into a generator that spins and shoots power back into the batteries. So just a regular combustion engine can be made, you know, double or triple the efficiency just from that. This happens to coincide with a rise in oil prices, and both cars did very well in Japan, Honda released the Insight globally in 1999, and Toyota brought the Prius in, to the U.S. in 2000. Uh, the Insight had a bunch of problems, um, and it was a weird design that uh, Americans were very uncomfortable with. It had this thing like where the outside skin of the car, rather than there being a wheel well, it just went over the tires. So like people weren't sure how to change their tires <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, whereas the Prius was sort of the right mix of recognizably a car, not too weird, but also just weird enough that if you were the kind of person who was interested in buying something techno futury, it like made you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Prius just did gangbusters from a non-existent market segment. It was selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars. It was doing really, really well. These cars weren't pure electric, but they show that the tech, that both the technology existed to make the, that kind of thing work now, and also that the there was a market. The public was interested in it, and you know people weren't looking at electric cars as just this weird hippie thing anymore. It was something that people were interested in. There was so this set off another flurry of innovation around sort of drivetrain technologies and things. Um, Tesla was founded in two thousand four, and they released the Roadster in two thousand eight. Uh, and the Roadster is an interesting touch point as well because it doubled back on what the Prius had did. The Prius wanted to let everybody know that you were futury and cool and kind of a little bit environmentally conscious. Whereas the Roadster was like, we just want to be a muscle car. This is, you know, this is a sports car. So, so that was an interesting uh, bit of positioning. There were one or two fully electric or plug-in electric vehicles that were launched sort of every year from 2010 on, but Tesla sort of really came to be very big in the market, held back by some of their, their business practices, but, um, and, you know, there, there's a, a lack of uh, infrastructure, which we'll probably be talking about a little bit later, but they've gradually done better and better, and they, they've, the, the market is pretty sizable now, especially internationally. And uh, even the big car makers now feel like they have to be in the game in, in some sense. I'll um, quickly lay out what 
electric vehicles are and what the what we're mostly dealing with in the marketplace right now, electric vehicles are cars that are powered by energy that's stored in some sort of source and then the output is to an electric motor, which in this case the electric motor that's pretty standard technology that's been around for a long time the the main battery source is lithium ion batteries which might be in your uh, cell phone laptop computer they have some advantages and disadvantages obviously they're much lighter than what we were talking about the big wet cell battery that your car might have in them they have some downsides in that with impacts, they can combust spectacularly. Uh, there's some other alternatives like uh, magnesium ion batteries, aluminum ion batteries. Some of these batteries, they're more energy dense. They're in other ways safer. So these are some technologies that are in the in the works. There's also hybrid technology that have an, an internal combustion engine, usually a small one, that powers the battery pack, which then the car runs off of that electricity. And that has the benefit of extending the range of the vehicle, as well as being a backup if the batteries do fail. There's also fuel cell technology such as hydrogen, which um, I think that technology is really in its infancy. There is some practical, but it's not as um, nowhere near as commercially available as a hybrid or pure electric. And then there's some other ones as well, more exotic ones. I just recently learned that the police department in my town was switching over in their next fleet flip. So you're talking within the next six months to a year to either hybrids or all electrics. And many municipalities across the country are switching to hybrids or electrics because they really do serve their needs much better. Most towns aren't that huge geographically, so range isn't an issue and for emergency services vehicles, the performance of electric vehicles is usually much better than uh, gasoline-powered vehicles. Yeah, I actually didn't mention this before. I, I meant to that, um, like you don't need a you don't need a transmission in an electric car because it's it's a flat line torque, which I'm told means something. I don't understand it, <laughs> <laughs> but it just it does mean that like. The, the power transition to the road is much more cleaner, and so they get a lot more power much quicker. And one of the interesting things about Tesla is that they had to unlearn, you know, a hundred years of automotive industry experience, and they, they like, bought a car model off the shelf and then adapted it into the Roadster, and it took them several years to realize that the transmission was entirely unnecessary. You can YouTube videos of electric vehicles like a Tesla versus the highest-end gasoline power car and the tesla will beat the gasoline car in almost every metric i mean even if you um, are driving down the street a prius will probably beat almost any gasoline car except for maybe the most exotic um ferrari or something like that off the line and they they have that sort of entitlement advantage that just helps them go faster <laughs> 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 but it is has to do with the the 
energy is going directly from the the motor the electric motor to the wheels there's no intermediary in between with the teslas they had to purposefully program them to not go as fast and perform as well as they could in order to be street legal yeah (laughs) and just like generally safe for for people to drive (laughs) corporate fleets though definitely that's a place where there's uh, a lot of real uh capacity for switchovers although you know there's places where there's resistance and there's places where it's inappropriate we we may get to them a little bit later you know it's, it's really interesting that your your town's switching over now, what problems are these technologies of electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles, what are they trying to solve? From from a sort of problem statement point of view, like I said before, this all starts with the, the non-point source pollution issue and also sort of the, the nationalistic fears about energy security and stuff. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to be more efficient with your fuel, step one. Step two, though, is this thing called range anxiety. And at a basic level, it's the fear of running out of power or fuel. Everybody has it if you drive, if you drive a car. Everybody has that sort of nightmare, or it's, you know, it's fodder for every horror movie made in the 1960s and 1970s. You're out on a country road, your car runs out of gas in a rainstorm, and you have to go to the creepy house uh, to see if you can stay the night or get some gas, and then everyone's murdered. So... You know, this isn't just an electric car thing, but with electric cars, there's this this um, issue where we've got gas stations all over the place now because it's an established market and there's an established amount of infrastructure. We don't have uh, electric charging stations everywhere. Um, and there's some reasons for that. And But basically, the, the fear is that, you know, if my car only gets 90 miles to a charge and I'm driving more than 90 miles, I could run out of power, and then what's going to happen? Who knows? I have to knock on the scary door. What the technologies are kind of trying to do from a, on a tactical level, the strategic level is all that non-point source pollution stuff, but on a tactical level, what the technologies that we're seeing in the Teslas and, and those cars, what they're trying to do is extend the range or reduce the charge time to make the experience of driving an electric car more like driving a gas-powered car or a diesel-powered car. So there's a couple parts to that. Some of them are, are pretty basic. Uh, just extending the range is, is pretty simple for most people to understand. Uh, you, you put in bigger battery packs or more efficient battery packs. Uh, you do things like you do the regenerative braking system. You, you do things to make running the car more f- efficient from an electric standpoint. And that, you know, extends your range. Um, when I, I did a white paper on charging technologies and stuff, uh, infrastructure, two years back. And at that point, no one had crossed the 100-mile threshold. The moment I hit print and printed the first full copy of my, my report, like the next day, Tesla had crossed that line. And then, you know, now Teslas are crossing the 300-mile range line, and everyone's racing to catch up. But so this stuff is advancing really fast. The flip side of this is why is it important that they go that far? Because <laughs> with a gas car, you know, whatever your range is, you probably don't even know. Like they don't tell you when you go to the dealership, uh, this baby will go 200 miles on one tank of gas. 
Because you never, you know, you never let it drain. You stop at a gas station, uh, you know, as soon as you, you feel like it's necessary. So the, the issue with electric cars, you know, theoretically, we have electricity everywhere in our society. So this shouldn't be an issue. It's just that if you take, um, a, you know, a car with a hundred mile range and you plug it into an outlet, you know, just like the normal outlet in your house, that's going to take you 20 hours to charge from an empty. <laughs> So then they developed um, charging technology that's based on 270 volts, which is like what you plug your dryer into. And that'll get you charged for a 100-mile range car. That'll get you charged in, you know, about half that time. And then they have level 3 technologies, which, um, and, and above now, Tesla's going to some strange places. But you can get sort of that 100-mile that range car, you can get that charged in about 20 minutes. So we're getting down to the place... With that stuff, we're like, if you hit a rest stop on a highway or something, and you you plug go, you plug in your car, and you go get something from, you go get something from the rest stop. You have a quick bite, and you get back out. Your car is charged. So that that's getting to the the place where it's the kind of um, experience that people are more used to. Yeah, it's probably worth um, explaining. The regular charging, what you're talking about, would be the plugging, just a regular plug like you'd plug your laptop or your television in. And that's, in the U.S., 110 volts. Right. Then the, um, the one like you'd plug in an electric dryer or an electric range is two, 220 volts. Right, right. And that um, is usually the maximum you can do. If you wanted that in, say, your garage for your car, you might have to, you would almost certainly have to have an electrician come and do that to have a special charging port put in. But then, you know, a lot of garages have them in there anyway. The, the, the expense of getting any of this stuff is, you know, either of those two technologies, I should say, uh, the expense is, is almost more, do you already have electric lines in your wherever it is you want to establish charging in your house. Yeah, it's not a huge leap. Yeah. If you have to rip up drywall, that's a bigger expense than, you know, putting in a 220-volt outlet. Yeah. Putting in level 3 charging or above, most of our our power works on AC, alternating current. DC, direct current, some of you may know that there was like a whole hubbub, just like with uh, how we were going to power our cars. There was a big debate about whether it was going to be AC or DC, you know, back when electricity was new. These days, DC is pretty much only used for long-distance high-tension high lines uh, because it turns out it's more efficient for that kind of thing. <laughs> and the only other place it's really used is level 3 charging or above because it's just that much power that you need to get like special uh, energy converters that, that ramp up the power, convert it to DC, and just like shovel it into the car at as high a rate as they can go. So obviously that... That's something that not even your average electrician is actually going to know how to do. So level three charging is, you know, something that's sort of an order of magnitude beyond what you'd want in your house. Uh, but it makes sense for it to be at places like rest stops. The one one thing I want to say about range anxiety and that whole thing before we move on is just that it's usually illusory. <laughs> Most of us don't go that far in a day. Uh, most of us, you know, we go 20 miles, 40 miles, something like that. In a day, we, we go to our job, which is, on average, 20 minutes from our house, usually. You know, we come home, we do some errands in the in the local area, 
And then our car, you know, our car sits there for like 16, 20 hours a day, <laughs> either at home in the garage or whatever, sitting right next to an electric outlet. Even if it's not 220, it's, it's just, an, it's still an outlet and it's just sitting there for hours and hours at a time. Or it's sitting at work. Uh, where there could be charging, there could be an outlet, if that was something that employers wanted to start doing. So, you know, a lot of the this range anxiety stuff, it's more perception than reality. As of, you know, 10 years ago, we had cars that had the range to make it for, for most trips that people wanted to do. Even for fleet vehicles, inner city, 200 miles for a range is more than enough. Totally, totally. The one place where fleet vehicles have issues, especially with emergency vehicles and stuff, and this is something we've run into at work, is that, um, you know, if the power goes out. Yeah. Uh, you, if your, your city gets bullseyed by a hurricane and you're without power for two, two weeks or more, and you, then all, you know, after two days or whatever, all the police cars stop running. That's a problem. So fleets that do that conversion tend to also need to, put in for um, an emergency generator and emergency fuel supplies just to keep keep the generator running just in case. But th- those are pretty, you know, it's an investment, but usually at this point, those kinds of things can pay off, again, depending on the fleet and the specific thing that they're trying to do. Now, the question somebody might ask is, okay, we're switching to electric cars, and as far as point source your pollution, you're cutting out the this one pollution box. But if the electricity is being made in a non-green fashion, maybe coal or um, natural gas, aren't you just shoving the pollution to a different source? Yeah. So there's two, two answers to that. The first one is that electric cars do tend to just be way more efficient than gas cars on an energy unit per energy unit basis. There's a lot of discussion around this still, but the the figures that I've seen are that on average, if you convert to uh, energy units, an electric car is going to be something around 50 uh, gas miles per gallon equivalent or more, probably more for the Teslas and everything of the world. There's issues there though, because of, I mentioned the, uh, the conversion penalty where you, you you're charging the batteries and you lose some of the power and there's a bunch of penalties that actually get incurred between your house and the power plant over the wires and going through transformers and stuff. You know, I haven't done the detailed research myself, but what I've, what my understanding is uh, in the industry is that level one electric cars are just more efficient. Level two is that once you've converted everybody to using point source pollution as their source of energy, well, we've dealt with point source pollution, right? You know, um, we know how to do that. We, we've got uh, policy tools that can help us fix point source pollution issues that go back to the 70s or the 60s. And ultimately, that is a transition that's going to need to be pushed forward. Um, and, you know, adding new energy drains on the grid may make it harder to convert from, you know, legacy power sources like coal, which is the worst. That's doable, and it's it's something that's already happening because the market forces are driving it. Actually, uh, natural gas, which is fifty percent more uh, lower greenhouse gases than even like oil or something, um, it, that's already just cheaper, <laughs> and it's it's way less of a headache to deal with. 
uh, for the power companies, so they're already choosing to switch over to natural gas. And, you know, as we go forward and the technology improves, green technologies will, will take up the slack eventually, eventually as we go forward. So, you know, we, we've already seen, uh, over the last decade, huge improvements in the efficiency and the, you know, huge drops in greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. And that's relative. <laughs> Given the increasing power demands that the U.S. is making, what we've seen is that the, you know, the greenhouse gas curve has flattened. Another piece of technology, I don't know how much um, municipalities are looking into this, but if, say, in an average neighborhood, not even everyone, 50% of the people came home from work at 5 o'clock and plugged in their electric car on a hot July night, in the Northeast and then go into their house and turn on right. all their lights yeah. and their air conditioning. That's a major draw on the system. Are places planning for that sort of, you know, major change in uh, usage? The short answer is yes-ish. The, the thing is that the, the draw on the energy grid already works that way. And this is actually part of why natural gas has been so competitive. In general, we use way more power at night just because, you know, we're at work all day and at work everyone's using super efficient fluorescent shop lights and everything and, and our houses stay off uh, for the most part. We come home and we turn on the air conditioner, we crank up the, the electric range, we turn on all the lights, we fire up the TV. So we're, we're already, we already have very choppy demand. Technologies like coal were actually used to be really bad at dealing with that kind of choppiness. The um, nuclear power is in the same area, and um, and even like hydropower. Uh, these old legacy technologies were good at you know having one big engine that delivered just a huge amount of capacity. But if you needed more, it it was like you know turning around the Titanic. You know it was firing up a, a power plant takes time. And it can be really hard and expensive. And then if at, you know, at, you know, 11 o'clock when everyone goes to sleep, the power demand drops off, all of a sudden you have to then take this thing back offline. Power plants like, uh, that use technologies like natural gas, um, they're smaller, they're designed small, and they are super efficient at starting and stopping really quickly. And so if you, if, you know, if you ever see, uh, an LNG, uh, a natural gas plant, they're, they're, they're just the size of a house, you know, or, or a, a three-story office building, something along those lines. Um, they're, they're very small, but they, they give you a lot, give the power companies a lot of flexibility to bring power on and offline really quickly. So the question then is, you know, how many, how much of that can you build? <laughs> this gets us into sort of, you know, we're off on a tangent a little bit already. So just to say, um, a lot of the uh, green, you know, sustainable power options for the grid also are very chunky. They have the advantage of being flexible. They can come and go on and offline really quickly. Things like solar energy, though, they deliver their power during the day when it, there's lower demand. So that's actually kind of a count against them. Uh, and this is, I should say, currently we're in a situation where there's no storage of electricity in the grid. Uh, the companies have put a century of effort into just su supplying power, not feeling like they need to store power for any reason. Um, so all of a sudden now there's a discussion about, well, what if we develop some technologies so that 
we can charge up these big battery packs during the day with solar power and then feed them out into the grid at night. So there's some stuff like that that's being researched and stuff. Wind power actually ends up being really interesting because depending on where you locate it, they wind power often will generate more at night. But then it's always kind of a, a risky proposition because you don't get to dictate the weather when the wind is blowing. <laughs> on some of the other uh, pollutants, it's maybe some of the uh, ancillary pollutants that you don't think about. The ones maybe with the car are kind of obvious. They're full of oils, uh, heavy oils in the engine. They have antifreeze, which is even the non-toxic kind is pretty toxic. What are some of the side pollutants that come with electric vehicles are not completely free and clear. They do have some impacts to the environment. Uh, within the car itself, uh, we should just say that most of the motor oil and most of the gasoline and diesel fuel is gone, right? You still you still need window washer fluid for what that's worth. And on the roads, you're still going to have salt treatment, which isn't great. The, the biggest thing is going to be the materials used to make the batteries and the electric equipment. And I mentioned this before, the rare earth minerals. They're called that because they're pretty rare. They can only fa be found in a few places on earth. And as is usually the case for these kinds of things, some can be found in developed countries. A lot can only, a lot of it can be found in undeveloped countries. So while the mining, mining is never really a pretty process, <laughs> but at least in developed countries, it's usually well regulated. Uh, in Australia, they have these massive strip mines that look egregious and they, you know, probably are to a certain extent, but you know, when the mine runs out, you know, the the Australian government controls run off as if that's an issue in the outback. But, you know, <laughs> the, the, there's 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 controls on what's going on. Uh, so Australia is one of the big sources. China's one of the big sources, but that's kind of a question mark. Um, but then a lot of the rare earth minerals are in Africa, in like the Congolese basin along the, the, the crater lakes. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today between the Congo and Rwanda, and it's 
If you know anything about the history of that region, it's one of the most violent flashpoints on Earth. Um, it, it's been in a state of almost constant war for the past 40 years. And that sort of wider region is where blood diamonds came from. The international community's established a lot of controls on diamonds. It's not perfect, but, you know, there's a lot of controls. But so now people are basically talking about conflict minerals. And it's just anything that you can strip mine with a hand tool and sell to an international company. And it's, uh, the rare earth mineral mining is actually becoming more of a problem than the diamonds were. Um, although international attention has sort of tamped down on a lot of the active military activity, this is still a, a source of funding for those kinds of operations. Yeah, as far as I know, the rare earth mining, it, like you said, mining isn't the prettiest thing to begin with, and it's even more intense. And then, like you said, you throw in a place like the Congo that has had a pretty rough history. Yeah. It's, it just adds to it, to these and things. It, and it's worth saying that most of these things are highly toxic. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want to, you know, you, you know, most of us probably wouldn't want to be mining rare earth minerals without safety equipment. And so, you know, <laughs> that's a problem. It might know. not be a long term problem with some of the other battery technologies that yeah. are out there. Yeah. I will say that, you know, the over under on this is some localized catastrophic pollution ruined lives are bad and obviously terrible. But if we, you know, if we believe the hype, we're talking about planetary ca catastrophe. So um, there's a there's an element of, well, you know, <laughs> mining for some batteries until we can find the better solution is probably OK. <laughs> if you put it like uh, that. With that rosy picture, what do you think is the <laughs> what's the the summary of the environmental perspective? There's some there are some negatives to electric vehicles quite a few negatives to a um, internal combustion engine. What would you say is the over-under on the environmental impact of electric vehicles? Well, so what, one thing I, before I get to that, one thing I didn't talk about is that there's a lot of problems that cars cause that aren't just even touched by electric cars because there's things like we have an entirely auto-dependent transportation system, which requires all this impervious surface, which is blacktop, right? And rain runs off of that and causes severe flooding. I mentioned salt or de-icing chemicals. Um, sand can cause lots of sediment buildup. All the blacktop can cause heat island effects and stuff like that in, in localized areas. And there's just this low-density built environment pattern that we get from being dependent on cars. And, you know, if you imagine the way suburbs are built versus a city, if you try and put the same population into the same area and you have them being dependent on cars versus other forms of transportation, um, you, you're destroying more habitat. You're taking up more of the planet's surface that could be devoted to things like agriculture or woods. A lot of, All that stuff is just not touched by electric cars. Cars sol solve or reduce the harm for the, this big climate-spanning crisis that we potentially face in terms of global warming, but they don't touch a lot of the other really serious problems, like, you know, car crashes. People are still going to get killed in car crashes. Um, there's some thought that electric cars might be safer, but, you know, I, I <laughs> you, you smash two things together at 90 miles an hour and people die. You know, there's, there's only, I, I don't think that there's 
too much of a big change we can make on that based on changing the kind of engine you have in it. So the the my summary from an environmental perspective then is it's a net positive probably it, it's certainly a harm reduction uh, and it gets to what's probably the most critical overarching issue that we're facing right now but it's not a silver bullet um, I'm probably going to be saying that a lot in this series but you know it's not it doesn't touch on a lot of the big problems that we still have you know in terms of energy efficiency and, and things like that. It makes this one specific issue a little bit better. All in all, they're cars. Yeah, at the end yeah. of the day, they're still cars. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on now and talk to the point of how these electric vehicles are going to affect the economy in general and public policy. There's a new technology and public policy really has to keep pace with these new technologies. I guess one of the big things that comes up is right now, electric vehicles are subsidized in one way or the other by state, federal, and national government. What are these policies of subsidizing electric vehicles meant to do? The idea is to help create a market in a situation where emerging technologies are always more expensive than they will be. Because you haven't, you know, it's new, you have to pay for all your research, and you haven't got the economy of scale yet on the production line. I mean, just just this past year's headlines about what Tesla's been going through for the Model 3, it shows you sort of a, the risk that companies take in, in getting this stuff going. So providing subsidies is a way for a government to help offset that risk and lower the prices that the consumer will experience if there's a technology that is potentially beneficial. You know, our government's done this for you know years for various technologies and, and certainly governments around the world have as well. A question could be though, are these subsidies are they incentivizing people because obviously subsidies are meant to incentivize people to make a decision. Are they right. possibly incentivizing people to make a, de- a decision that's where there could be better decisions like i mean obviously there is subsidies of regular gas vehicles with gas taxes not necessarily keeping pace with the infrastructure that they're supposed to be paying for right um, right. if you're not but i okay that i had a thing about the gas but we'll hold off on that for a second (laughs) or with people making choices in different transportation options right yeah so that that, is a great question i think one of the things we need to touch on first is a concept called demand elasticity so if you think back to your econ 101 course or if you've ever just seen a graph of supply and demand we often think of this idea as as being linear that for every you know dollar I cut off the price of something, uh, demand's going to go up a certain amount. And it's a, it's a linear relationship, a straight line relationship. Real life doesn't work that way, especially in transportation. Uh, if you think about gas prices, for every you know couple cents that gas goes up per gallon, what we see is that it's not actually the case that people respond by driving less in a linear fashion. There's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I'll, I'll come back to the main question, I swear. You know, when, when people drive, they don't necessarily internalize how much a mile of driving is costing them. It, it So it can take a while for them to start realize getting hit in a way that makes them 
take notice of driving and, and start to really want to scale back. Uh, and it's, it's not a linear relationship. Uh, the other thing is that people feel like they have to drive. They, they, they don't feel like there's any other options. And, you know, the, they feel like they have to do the daily activities that they're, they're going to do anyway. And so as gas prices fluctuate, they just sort of ride the curve for the most part and, you know, don't respond in, in a linear fashion the way people might expect. Now, they do respond to gas prices. And, you know, we see uh, usage rates of public transportation go up during recessions and things like that and when gas prices are really high. But the the bottom line is that people are much less responsive to price on things like gasoline than they are on other goods. So demand elasticity is a really important part of that. And so elasticity is like a rubber band. You, know, you don't necessarily, you're, you're when you pull on one end of a rubber band, your other hand doesn't immediately feel the full force of the pull until you, you've got it stretched out a certain way, and then, it's, then you start to feel the force, right? So demand elasticity. So in terms of changing their decisions based on subsidies and incentives that have, have been provided for electric cars and stuff, there is definitely an effect that is totally backed up by all the evidence I've seen, and that includes colleagues just like talking to dealers and stuff. People will say that, you know, uh, they're very interested in getting those those tax breaks or whatever um, that come with buying an electric car. But the context is always really important with these kinds of policies. In the U.S., we have uh, subsidies. They vary by state because the states have different subsidies. And it's helped create a market. It's definitely helped. But it's nothing compared to what's happened in Europe, which is really interesting, <laughs> especially Scandinavia and the low countries. In Europe in general, owning a car is a luxury. It's not a right. Uh, and it's taxed as such. And so you'll often find places uh, like the, the Netherlands, I think, has a 200% sales tax on car ownership, something like that. That's one of the higher ones, but they're all very high. Um, again, because it's not a right. There's other options. They're not, like, restricting you to your house. You can take the train system that they lavishly subsidize and stuff like that. If you drive an electric car, that's been, that is considered to have some pretty substantial benefits for society, since you're choosing to drive an electric car rather than a, a gasoline-powered car. They have to worry about their energy security risk less, and, you know, there's the pollution benefits. So... They provide very substantial sales tax breaks right up front at the at the cash register, and so all of a sudden um, this changes the choices that people make very quickly. You know, I could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and get a subcompact gasoline-powered car, or I could spend a little bit less and end up with a Tesla Roadster. <laughs> And if, you know, if I'm, this is my entry-level car, you know, maybe I'm going to go for the Roadster. And so uh, in Scandinavia, especially, there's been a huge, huge market uptick in electric car sales based on these incentives. Now, what the question is, you know, one of the interesting things you said in your question was, if these subsidies didn't exist, would these people be riding public transportation, essentially? You know, would they be making a better choice if the subsidy didn't exist? I haven't seen too much work on that, uh, and it hasn't, in the past, it hasn't been an issue because, you know, when the Tesla Roadster was the only viable electric car option on the road, you know, you're still paying a bomb <laughs> for a car. Now that the prices have been dropping, 
it's a really interesting question, and I'm going to be interesting to see what the the research says. I haven't seen any work on it yet, but it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what that says in in these uh, in these places where they they subsidize so heavily, and they also have the option of public transportation. That's like a real option. Will people still make that decision? In the U.S., um, where public transportation is so much less of an option, I think it's going to be a while before we see that kind of debate come to the forefront. But, you know, maybe in certain individual cases. Well, my my question that I pulled out of the last question about um, gas taxes, I think it's even more maybe focused on the European situation you explained, where if you have people switching from public transportation to increasing car drivership, where's the money going to come from to pay for the infrastructure involved that vehicles need, like roads and everything that comes with roads? And are they thinking that with subsidizing these electrical vehicles that they might be changing people's habits? Right. So in the U.S., this is a real crisis. It's building across the country. And it's not electric cars. It's our cars now, just gas-powered cars, are head and shoulders more efficient than they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, what the things that we were driving in the 70s were just ridiculous. You might as well have just had a rocket-powered car. In Europe, where these subsidies are, are being much, so much more effective, it's less of an issue because they pay for their infrastructure differently. Yes, gas is taxed, and those taxes are used for road construction. But transportation funding in general comes much more from the sales tax, that 200% sales tax. You know, a lot of that goes to public transportation, actually, but a lot of it goes to the roads. (laughs) And, you know, registration rates are extremely high. People have to take road tests every couple of years, which they don't in this country, and they have to pay for that. So there's a bunch more fees stacked on there. Driving is much more expensive. Businesses have to pay, in most European countries, a VAT, uh, which is a a vehicle something tax. (laughs) And basically, it's if you have employees and they're driving to your business, uh, you have to pay a tax. (laughs) And that tax is used... Well, no, so it's not just vehicles. Uh, I'm I'm completely messing up the acronym. But the the VAT is essentially it's a tax per employee... After you have, after your business is bigger than 25 employees, you get hit with a certain tax per head. And that pays for public transportation, it pays for roads, it pays for the whole transportation infrastructure. They have a much more robust way of paying for transportation, which is seen as, you know, a core governmental function. Um, whereas we have sort of one tax and a smattering of local fees. As a result, just from the efficiency advances that we've made in the last couple decades, the Highway Trust Fund is in danger of running out on a fairly regular basis. Uh, local agencies are just being hammered, absolutely hammered, declining revenues every year. Um, and it's just completely un, you know, unpopular for politicians to talk about. Here in New England, where people are a little bit more friendly to the idea of paying for services that they use, we've seen up, uh, you know, jumps in the gas tax in the last couple, the last couple of years, even, uh, a bunch of the states around here have pushed it up a few cents and a few notches and things like that. But that's just a band-aid. You know, the, w- w- this is a, this is a, this is a wealth that's drying up. And we're just gonna have to find new ways to pay for this stuff. 
we also have in the electric cars that they're not just changing the technology of how cars operate. The big companies in electrical vehicles like Tesla are really trying to shake up how the the vehicle market works. What are some of the things that are happening there that might change um, how people buy vehicles? Well, so that's that's fairly specific to Tesla uh, in particular. Um, Tesla has been wanting to move away from the uh, dealership model, which people don't really um, appreciate how artificial the dealership model is. Uh, it, based on a variety of, of local and federal regulations that were intended to stimulate the local economy, essentially, that's why dealerships are required to be that way. And they're essentially enforced franchises uh, that the car companies can't directly sell you a car for the most part, that you have to go through this, this retail establishment that's owned by someone who's not, you know, Ford. You know, Ford can't just you can't walk into Dearborn, Michigan and ask for a car. You have to go to one of the dealerships, which are owned by not Ford. And you also <laughs> can't buy a car through Amazon or right, exactly. Walmart or something. And so Tesla's been fighting against that by essentially just ignoring the law as far as people will let them. It's going to be real interesting to see how that shakes out. Because theoretically, their their locations are still going to have employees they just won't be the kinds of employees that are currently, you know, they, they won't have local ownership. So not so much of the proceeds will go to someone in the local area. Uh, they won't be have, they won't have people who are, you know, presumably they won't have so many people who are getting paid on commission and everything. They're still going to have to have mechanics on site and everything, you know, cars break. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it's not like, you know, if you listen to people in the dealership industry, they are screaming bloody murder about this, and they are saying we've got all these hundreds of thousands of jobs that are dependent on dealerships, and Tesla is trying to steal the bread out of these people's kids' mouths. I think we could see some job losses if the Tesla model takes off, but there's a certain element of, well, that might be an economic inefficiency, and it's not like all those jobs are going away. So I, I don't know how that's going to shake out. I'm not a good enough economist to even hazard a guess. Um, <laughs> it, I will say that the dealership system is kind of a bizarre governmental intrusion into the free market, <laughs> but maybe it's a good one. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's like <laughs> anything, um, where there's going to be a big disruption. Yeah. Nobody can really tell right now what's going to come out on the other end of that. Yeah, exactly. One other place where there's going to be a disruption is in terms of how people get fuel into their car. We've touched on this just a little bit, and I just want to circle back on it just real quick. Uh, surveys that have been done of people who already own electric cars, most of them are doing all their charging at home, uh, one way or the other. And we, you know, I've already mentioned a couple of the reasons why, but there's, uh, it's not clear that that's going to continue. If you have level three charging stations on every street corner, that, that might change things. But there's actually a couple really, like, weird little local ordinances that, might prevent that from happening. Like most states have some sort of rule that prevents the retail sale of electricity. So, so like I can't set up a, a lemonade stand in front of my house saying, you know, five bucks to charge here. And there's, or, or like I can't go out in front of my house with a generator and start generating power and off, you know, with a sign. There's a bunch of reasons for that, uh, that go back a hundred years and most of them are good. Some of them are about protecting 
the monopolies that the government granted in order to get the private industry to build the grid. But I think that most people, even the utility companies, are kind of okay with charging people to charge their cars <laughs> at like sort of a gas station type environment. Mm-hmm. It's just finding the way to put that wording into local ordinances that in a lot of places actually hasn't been done yet. Then there's a bunch of changes in like local building codes to make it sort of required to have electricity in garages or something like that um, that would be useful in pushing forward uh, electric- electrification of the fleet. But you know, most of the changes that are going to need be needed are stuff that we've already talked about in terms of greening the grid and stuff. So uh, that's all all a bunch of stuff that um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. And like you said, disruptive technologies, we're not really sure what's going to happen. But there is going to be an interesting policy set of policy implications that people like me are going to need to deal with and make decisions about. Then we're also looking at the issue. It's not strictly economics, but are we going from oil wars where there's wars all over the and conflict all over the world over oil to wars and conflict over these rare earth metals? That's definitely I mean, we already talked about conflict minerals, so there's, there's definitely already some inkling of that. The, the flip side of that, though, is that there's some interesting uh, potential in terms of things like some of the best places to get this stuff isn't on Earth, it's like on asteroids and things like that. And people have been talking for decades about we want private industry to take over space flight uh, and space exploration, and the, the only thing that anyone can think of is some sort of sort of space mining operation. But then there, there hasn't been sort of a need. Like, we have gold. We have, <laughs> in you know, not unlimited quantities, but we have enough now that we've got the technologies that we have. But with rare earth minerals, it, it might be the case that we actually run out pretty quickly because they are rare. And that might be the kind of thing that pushes some of these more sci-fi scenarios where instead of squabbling over some valley in the Congo, uh, we, you know, maybe just capture an asteroid and bring it to earth and cut it up <laughs> i i think that that's largely the reason why space exploration has sort of petered out in the last i mean since going to the moon is that there really hasn't been a commercial push going to outer space i mean even if we look at the age of exploration in the early modern period christopher columbus didn't sail from spain to because he wanted to yeah. find cool stuff yeah well he wanted to find cool stuff that he could to sell. sell yeah back in europe <laughs> he, he didn't want to um go do studies of the nature and learn foreign languages <laughs> yeah if you're going to put out that kind of money you want to you want to get a return on your investment at some point Government subsidies, again, useful for you know, starting off an industry, but you need an industry to be there for it to take off. So in your estimation, what's the overall economic perspective of electric cars, plus, minus? As, as the market matures, as the technology matures, and we get those economies of scale and everything, subsidies are going to be less and less required. You know, the, At a basic level, it's just going to be cheaper to run an electric car than a gasoline-powered car. Uh, as reserves of oil go away and reserves of other kinds of energy remain the same, you know, an electric car is able to process energy from many more different sources than a, a gas-powered car. So I think over time, the market is just going to go up. 
Now, how that helps people in general, who's going to get the the benefits and the, the, the losses from that is interesting. And I, I think it's very neutral. Ultimately, I think what we've seen so far is that the people who have benefited most have been maybe not rich people, but certainly upper middle class. <laughs> people with the money to spend on a, you know, $50,000 subcompact. And, you know, that's fine. They, they're doing something for the environment. And I'm, I'm glad that they're doing that, but it, you know, it certainly hasn't been people on, you know, li- living on the edge of poverty who need to, just need to get to work, who are driving a $500 car that are, you know, reaping the benefits from hybrid technologies and electric technologies. One of the, the questions I think from this is sort of like, are the people who are economically struggling because of the need to own an automobile, are they going to see any relief because of electric cars as they get cheaper? Uh, as they enter the aftermarket, I think, you know, potentially at some point they might. But I, I think that the the flip side of economics is that uh, everything always finds an equilibrium. Uh, at, at, at some periods in its history, economics was called the grim science because of this, that you, you always sort of find, in the long run, no one wins. <laughs> Uh, the, the advantages that we're potentially seeing from electric vehicles from sort of a socioeconomic standpoint, they're going to drive adoption of the technology, but in the long run, the benefits are going to be diminishing and um, poor people will still be poor and they won't, you know, the, they will just absorb the, the moderate benefits and not sort of be uplifted by them in the long run, I think. Yeah, I think that in the long run with technology I mean, obviously, the wealthier are going to reap, they're going to see the leading edge of the the technology where the, you know, it's more incremental at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Yeah. I think there's, there, there's benefits to the, the functioning of the entire economy overall, which can benefit everybody. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the people at the lower end of the scale might not feel it. Now, with the electric vehicles, shortly the safety is they do get into accidents. There's there's not much you can do about that. They're not full of combustible liquid when they get into an accident. So that's something that they have on their side. They generally are, are more they can be better designed for passenger safety because they don't have a lot of the necessary equipment that an internal combustion engine has. In, environmentally, if there is an accident, there's a lot less of toxic chemicals that can be released into the environment. On the negative side, though, that the... I mean, I guess it's what as the theme that's been going through the entire episode is that they're not really fixing a lot of the issues that cars bring into the bring to the uh, fore, such as people are still sitting in a vehicle; they're not walking, they're not um, getting exercise in their yeah. car. They're still cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that yeah, in that issue. Yeah. In terms of the obesity issue, you know, they, you know, they're still going to be living sedentary lifestyles where they drive three blocks, you know, it's, 
But there, there are bigger public health issues that they would resolve. One of the biggest uh, environmental justice problems that, that I tend to care about in, uh, in my job is, you know, air quality hotspots where there's, you know, five hot highways come together. Wealthier people don't move there because of all the noise and everything. But what no one realizes is that the, the presence of large particulate matter and, and all sorts of different kinds of smog are sky high there. But no one, you don't notice that. We don't, it, you know, it's colorless, odorless. Maybe it's, you smell it a little bit, but meanwhile, everyone get, gets asthma and lung cancer. There's a lot of evidence about that kind of thing. It's not completely rock solid what the causes are, because there's a lot of variables. We are pretty sure that the the auto industry creates these air quality hotspots that create long-term health problems from air pollution. And, um, you know, uh, th- that would just be something that if we had, you know, a, a highly electrified car fleet, Again, because the non-point sources of pollution would be localized to point sources of pollution, that would be a problem that would go away. Like you're saying with the point source with the cars, there could be a bad interchange that's in a slight depression Yeah, exactly. that's near a housing development. And there's no way you could ever plan for that where you could potentially have a much better plan of where you're going to put a power station. Right. It, well, you know, those those air quality hotspots are a thing that we're, we are t- tasked with trying to identify and then remediate. And there are things we can do about them once we find them. But, it, you know, it's it's actually hard to find something that's colorless and odorless and tasteless. <laughs> um, and you, you, we don't have uh, air quality monitoring stations spread out over the landscape, because it turns out they're kind of expensive to run, and you've got to process the data. So... Yeah, it would just take a lot of the burden off of the, the, air, the air pollution from non-point source pollution. And not even in the, the sort of planetary catastrophe sense, just in the effects on people's lives in inner city areas kinds of way. Looping back around to social equity, what are some of the other aspects of social equity that electric cars are impacting both positively and negatively? Yeah. So we've touched on a bunch of this stuff. Certainly the, the air pollution issue uh, would be a social equity benefit. From an economic perspective, you know, there's a potential for the wealth inequality to increase as electric cars sort of cycle through the system. Um, we have a very aftermarket-based automotive market where you know people who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you know, including me, uh, we don't buy new cars. <laughs> Uh, and you know even if we did maybe we wouldn't be throwing money at one of the electric cars that's on the market right now because they're still a little bit too pricey with the subsidies so we sort of have to wait for the the cars to percolate through the market and since electric cars come with economic benefits then the poor don't see those benefits for longer so that that's a that's an issue where the benefits go to people who need it less but we've, we've talked about that already. Um, I guess in general, say things even like switching over to electric buses, does that really change how people use buses? But this is something that's been getting talked about a lot recently. Um, and actually, the planners have been aware of this and have known about it for years. And we, we have a very specific response to this. Electric buses aren't actually going to do that much. Even from a like an environmental standpoint, 
you know, unit per unit with energy and everything, running a full bus using the dirtiest diesel engine you can find is going to be way more energy efficient than a fleet of electric cars. It's just, you know, you have one power plant versus 50, essentially. Uh, 50 or more, depending on whether you let people stand in the bus. So there's a lot of interest right now in getting transit companies to electrify their their bus fleets. Train fleets is a little different. There's actually, like, efficiency benefits because electric trains run faster. But when it comes to buses, they run pretty much the same uh, because the engine isn't the, the bottleneck to bus speed. The only thing that's different is how much money you spend on fuel, which really isn't actually all that big an expense for public transit companies. It's really the labor. Um, and so it's just the, the big benefits would be to society and the environment, and having an electric power plant in a bus just really isn't that big a deal. A lot of companies are just choosing to switch over to hybrid buses because saving fuel doesn't kill them and it's not that much more expensive. With electric buses, like I mentioned before, in terms of emergency vehicles, buses are actually part of the emergency management plan of almost every place that has public buses. You know, when a hurricane's coming for your con- your community, or an earthquake, or, you know, whatever, the bus, the public transportation system is activated, and they'll help with evacuations, they'll help, you know, evacuate nursing homes and schools, uh, get people out of the path of a um, if, again, you know, if you're in a situation where the grid's going to be locked out, knocked out for a while, that means that the bus company then needs to have generators and everything. And you're not talking about little cars now needing to draw power. You're talking about giant buses needing to draw tons of power. So this becomes a, a much bigger logistical issue than it would be for even like a police department or an ambulance service or something. So it, it ends up actually, you know, in a situation... If public transit systems were lavishly funded, switching over to electric vehicles, great, okay, that's good. But in a situation where they're massively underfunded, it's spending money on a place that's not as important. What are some conclusions that we can draw from all these things that we've laid out with electric vehicles? I mean, I I guess the biggest takeaway is they're still cars. (laughs) So, as a planner, everything that I complain about with cars, except their capacity to pollute for the most part, is still true about electric cars. You know, they they contribute to, you know, a less dense uh, settlement pattern, which creates all sorts of negative ramifications for the environment and society. I've said all that. That said, some of the biggest problems that come from cars are related to pollution and all that stuff that you know, electrification of the fleet would genuinely resolve. So, I mean, I, I tend to think that ultimately they're they're a net positive for society as a whole. It's certainly a, a harm reduction strategy while we get our act together with some of the other things. And I, I think that the market's ready for them and it's going to take it up on its own. Uh, public subsidies are probably still important for the next little while. Uh, certainly driving driving faster adoption now would help uh, have the economic benefits of electric cars percolate down the socioeconomic ladder faster, and and that would be a good thing. You know, in the main, it's electric cars are certainly not something I get super excited about, but I, I don't hate them. 
<laughs> I think they'd be a good thing, but not not strongly so. <laughs> it's like those asparagus leftovers from last night. <laughs> I like asparagus, but it's cold. It's cold asparagus. I guess that's okay. <laughs> a little mushy. Mushy maybe, but still fibrous somehow. Somehow they do that. Now, one thing that we will talk about in future episodes is the natural pairing of electrical vehicles with autonomous vehicles. We purposefully didn't bring autonomous vehicles into this into this conversation to really lay out lay out the specifics of electric vehicles. But so in the future episodes, we will definitely talk more about what impact autonomous vehicles and basically computer-driven vehicles will have on the transportation industry and how we get from one place to the other. If you were to just briefly say, what do you um, see for future episodes or what would you like to do in future episodes? Well, yeah. So part of the reason we laid out the series this way is there's a whole bunch of different interventions is what I'd call it professionally taken individually will have certain impacts that need to be understood. But then when you start putting them together, then they start having additive benefits or negative repercussions, depending on how things are put together. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how these two combine. Definitely looking forward to this autonomous conversation. That's something that's huge uh, in the industry right now. And uh, I'm going to be as much of a wet, wet blanket for that conversation as I am for this one. <laughs> It's going to be, you know, there, there's interesting positives, there's interesting negatives, and it's it's going to be really fun to just talk through these, and hopefully in a way that isn't too off-putting for people. <laughs> if you're uh, somebody out there who loves autonomous vehicles or who is an expert in them, we'd love to have you on to yeah, discuss I, this issue. You know, even I get tired of the sound of my own voice, and I, I, I love to get uh, other you know, other points of view. Again, I'm not like, I'm not rabidly anti-electric car, but there are, there are some negatives worth talking about and stuff. So, uh, it would be good to get someone who's, uh, and, and I'm, I'm a generalist here, you know, I, with a planner, you, you sort of need to have your thumb in every pie. So having someone with some specific knowledge would be great. So. And if you're in the New York City area, depending on when we get this one released, <laughs> and you want to come and visit us and talk about these issues, we'll definitely look to see you at the Intelligent Speech Conference. Yes, we will both be there, and that's going to be fantastic. As will Mike Duncan himself of the History of Rome podcast. David uh, Crowther. Yes, yes, and Kevin Stroud. Kevin Stroud is a gentleman. We uh, we ran into him a couple of months ago, and... I. Or I did. Did you get to meet him? I'm so sad I didn't get to meet him. <laughs> uh, well, you have to do it this time. He is one of the most pleasant people I've ever had the benefit of meeting. And uh, just uh, all-around wonderful human being. And uh, definitely looking forward to seeing seeing all of them. And, uh, you know, of course, ha you know, half of Agora is going to be there, too. So uh, if you want to meet any of us or any of those the other people we just mentioned, uh, it's going to be a great time, I think. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing wrong with being in New York uh, the weekend of, of June 29th. It's going to be a big party. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Won't be too hot yet, probably. Just get your book your hotel early. It's going to be crowded. <laughs> yeah. 
or use some of New York's great transit system and yes. stay a little further outside. Yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm, yeah, that's that's the way to go. I lucked into a room in the city, but uh, if 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 you have the choice, if you have the chance, uh, probably be cheaper to stay outside the city and come in. And New York's got a, a lovely public transportation system, despite some problems. So. Definitely. And if you if you want to get in contact, you can follow us on the Agora Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, all sorts of social medias, Reddit, I believe. Or you can always contact us at info at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And I should also say that we're, we're currently being sponsored by Flick Chat. And all of us have gone ahead and set up Flick Chats for our, all of our shows. And I, I believe there's if there's not an Agora one, I need to hit someone until they make one. And so, yeah, it's been it's been fun. Uh, people can uh, hop on and start topic threads and stuff. So Flick's a nice little app and give check it out. A whole bunch of us are on there. All right. And we will see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.